Well, Jerusalem had enjoyed many generations of prosperity and peace, protection, and victory even against their enemies. Basically, each generation had it a little bit better than the generation had it before them. But at the same time, they fell deeper and deeper into idolatry, and their leadership fell deeper and deeper into corruption until their leadership began to abuse even their own people. So things were getting better and better in these days in Jerusalem when it came to riches and technology. But they were getting worse and worse when it came to religion and and justice. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Yeah, yeah. So as we approach now the oracles of Micah, three oracles together in a book, we start today a seven-week series through the oracles of Micah. And we need to go into it knowing that we are hearing a message from this book that is incredibly timely because there are so many similarities with what Jerusalem was going through in these days and even what we see in the broader West all around us. So when we hear in a little bit, in a few weeks, of the glories of the coming kingdom and the beautiful justice that awaits us there, we need to hear that in a sense now more than ever. And when we hear uh, in a few moments of the rescue that Jesus will bring to his people who cry to him in distress, we need to hear that because it's the word of God and we need to hear it because of the times that we are in today. I say that because today we're starting off where Micah starts off and it is one of the most sobering truths, perhaps the most sobering truth in the entire Bible. Micah spends the entire first chapter detailing and picturing the coming judgment that will soon meet the entire world. A judgment and a destruction that will consume the earth, that will consume people that we love. And if we're really honest, will probably consume some of us in this room. Micah pictures that judgment as he writes a description of the coming destruction that is coming to Jerusalem. Our hearts will sit heavy with it. I imagine you will feel things as we read it. And as we do, we need to keep in mind all of this book is a message God wrote for us. Now, before we dive into the actual message of the book, I want to give you a clue as to the book's purpose, and that's in verse 1. So if you've got your Bible open, look at verse 1 with me. We see there... This whole book, it is the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth, that is the prophet who preached these words, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Samaria was the capital of Israel, the northern kingdom, after they divided. Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdoms. So he sees and foretells the destruction of both cities because of their sin against God. And we have in the name Hezekiah here a clue as to why God wanted to tell them about it before it happened. We have three kings there, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. Jotham and Ahaz did not repent when they heard the word. But if you know your Bible well, you may know Hezekiah as a fairly good character. And so you might ask yourself, now wait a minute, how did Hezekiah respond to this? And actually, the book of Jeremiah tells us, Jeremiah, a different prophet, writes about this prophet, Micah, 
And he says, in these days, Micah rose up and he proclaimed to King Hezekiah the destruction of Jerusalem. He says at one point, he even quotes this book and says, uh, the mountain of the house will be a wooded height. Jerusalem will be a heap of ruins. And then he records how Hezekiah responds when Micah preaches this message. Hezekiah trembles before God and entreats the favor of God. And then Jeremiah says what happens next. This is what will amaze you. The Lord relented and did not destroy Jerusalem. So we'll read here about the destruction of Samaria, which did happen, and the destruction of Jerusalem. And we know from the get-go why the Lord recorded this for us. Because these are the words that persuaded King Hezekiah to turn from sin, to tremble before God, to entreat God's favor, and even saved the city of Jerusalem. So the destruction on Jerusalem we're reading here that is threatened does not actually happen. That tells us why God would have this book recorded for us. He records this for us so that he can lead us to repent of our sin. And for those of us in this room who are in deep need of the gospel of Jesus Christ to entrust ourselves to him for salvation, he records these words to show us what is coming that he might move us to turn from sin and trust in Jesus Christ. So if you feel the Spirit of God searching your heart as we read these difficult words, either to convict you of ongoing sin in your Christian life or to convict you that you have never received the gospel of Jesus and you must receive it and be saved. My word to you is do not harden your heart if you hear his voice today. He speaks these words to call his people to repentance and to call everyone in the whole world to repentance. So here then is Micah chapter 1. I'll start at verse 2. These are some of the words that moved King Hezekiah to repent. He says, Hear, O you peoples, all of you, and pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? What is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All of her images shall be beaten to pieces and all of her wages shall be burned with fire. All her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not to Gath, weep not at all. In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way, inhabitants of Shaphir, in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zain, and do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. 
for the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, you inhabitants of Lachish. It, has, it was the beginning of sin for the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore, you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Axib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, O inhabitants of Marisha. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. The words of the Lord. Through that oracle, the Spirit of Jesus Christ warns everyone on earth of the coming judgment and calls everyone on earth to turn and to be spared. The setting here is that Israel, the northern kingdom of the divided kingdom of the people of God, the northern kingdom had fallen deep into idolatry and corruption, and their capital city would soon be destroyed because of their great sin. Micah is documenting how the southern kingdom, who was usually more faithful, was now infected with and falling to these same sins. And so the Assyrian army, who would soon come through and wipe out Israel, he says, it's going to come through Judah as well. It's going to come through you guys as well. So he begins to list towns that the army will go through and say, it is coming to the gate of Jerusalem. And this is his warning to the king, to the people of Jerusalem, and to all the people of Judah, turn and repent, lest your kingdom fall like it did for your brothers and sisters in the north. God wrote these terrifying words to call the king to repent. And that brings us uh, to the first truth we're going to look at this morning about God's judgment, the judgment that will soon come to the whole earth. We see from the beginning, because of the story of Hezekiah, that God reveals his judgment ahead of time so that people will repent and be spared. So the heart of God is to see people turn and be spared. So why does he reveal such a terrifying judgment? To move them to turn and to be spared. And this is how God operates throughout the scriptures. In another place, the prophet Jonah will go to the city of Nineveh, one of the most wicked cities in the earth. And he will walk its streets up and down shouting, 40 days and Nineveh shall be overturned. Now, if someone walked up and down Library Park in Greenwood shouting that about Greenwood, we would probably not treat him well. But this city, one of the most wicked cities on earth, heard him and they wept. They fasted. They put on sackcloth. They entreated God's favor and said, God, would you spare us? And then they brought word to the king and said, King, hear what this prophet says. And the the king himself rises up and says, We are all going to fast, the whole kingdom. Nobody is going to eat or drink. We are going to entreat God's favor, and perhaps he will spare us. Forty days later, Nineveh was not overturned. The Lord spared them. So why did God send Jonah to reveal that coming judgment? So that they could turn and be spared of it. 
Similar things happen in the New Testament. Paul will write letters sometimes in, like, to the Corinthians. He rebukes them and admonishes them for some very difficult things to say and gives them strong warnings. And then he says, I don't say these things to embarrass you, church. I say these things as a father to a son. So I want to admonish you and I want to see you grow and I want to see better for you. The same spirit in Paul as he's writing to the Corinthians. And in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus writes seven letters, one each to the seven churches that are nearby. And to the ones who are suffering, he calls them to hang on. And the ones who are in sin, he says some hard things to hear. He says, if you keep doing this, I'm going to put out your lamppost. He says to one, you think you're rich, but you don't realize that you're poor and pitiable and blind and naked. But then he says to them, those whom I love, I reprove. So be zealous and repent. Why did he say those things to the seven churches, to the ones that, that, he, that he said the hard things to? Why did he say that? Because he loved them and he wanted them to turn and repent. So why then did Micah rise up and give this message to the king of Judah? Because the Lord loved Hezekiah. He loved Jerusalem. He loved all the people around and he wanted to see them repent. That answers then our question, why would we have something this difficult in our Bibles? If you're a Christian, you need to know why. Why is that in my Bible? It's because the Lord loves us. Because the Lord wants to see us turn and repent. He wants to see your neighbors turn and repent. And so as we walk through many things about the Lord's coming judgment through this passage, the goal of the whole thing is to see us turn to him and trust him all the more in his deep love for us. So that's the first truth we learned today about God's coming judgments revealed beforehand so that we can turn and repent. In verse 2, we see who these words are written for. And this might surprise you. He says, Here are you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is, that is in it. So when he says you peoples, he doesn't mean the individuals of Israel and Judah. He means all the tribes, tongues, and nations. He is calling out to the whole world. Hear this, everyone. And then he echoes this in the next line. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. So this oracle was meant then, in a sense, to be proclaimed to the whole world. Now, why does the Lord want the whole world to hear about destruction that is threatened just to Jerusalem? And it's just about Jerusalem. I wonder if that sounds a little puzzling to you. Well, it's because the destruction and judgment threatened here are a picture of the destruction and judgment coming upon the whole world. So he says to everyone, hey, look what I am doing even to my own people. Do you think you will be spared as well? This is God's heart for the nations to see everyone in the nations turn and receive him. So there's the second truth we see about this particular judgment. This judgment is a picture of the judgment coming upon the whole earth. That also is a common theme in the prophets. They will often talk about the day of the Lord, this great day when God comes. He rescues his people. He judges his enemies and he amazes everyone. But the prophets are talking about all different kinds of days. The day they go off into exile, that's the day of the Lord. The day they come back is the day of the Lord. Several other days, the day in the city falls is the day of the Lord. In the New Testament, 
there's one day of the Lord, and it's coming. It's the day when Jesus Christ returns. It says, with a double-edged sword from his mouth, the book of Hebrews says, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This day that is being talked about here is a picture of the day that is coming, the day in which Jesus Christ returns. In verse 3, we see yet another truth of it. Uh, We already know that it's revealed beforehand to call people to repent. And we already know that this is a picture of the the judgment coming upon the whole earth. In verse 3, we see who it is associated with. Verse 3 says, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. So when does the destruction and judgment come for Jerusalem? When, When the Lord comes. This is the connection. In fact, that's a connection made all throughout Scripture. When the Lord comes, he delivers his people, he judges his enemies, and he amazes everybody. This happened even in the Garden of Eden, the first time mankind sinned. When when did the judgment come upon Adam? It wasn't when he ate the fruit and committed the sin. It was when the Lord came in the Garden. And later on, uh, in the days of the Exodus, the people of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, and the Lord appeared and a burning bush. So the Lord is, is there. And he begins to anoint Moses in his work. And he delivers the people from slavery, judges his enemies in Egypt, and everyone is amazed. The people saw in, in the waters how they had collapsed upon the Egyptian army, and they were amazed before God. This is what the Lord does every time he comes. He judges his enemies, he rescues his people, and he amazes everybody. This is even what he did the first time he came to earth. The first time he came to earth, it was to seek and save the lost, and he came and he saved us and he delivered us by dying and then rising again, dying to pay for our sins, rising to guarantee our life. He delivers his people when he comes. He also went into the temple and he flipped over the tables because he judged his enemies. He also spent a whole chapter in Matthew saying, woe to you Pharisees and scribes, you hypocrites. Why does he do that? Because when the Lord comes, he judges his enemies, delivers his people, and amazes everybody. This is what will happen when the Lord comes again. He will deliver his people, he will judge his enemies, and he will amaze everyone as he does it. That's why Acts 17 says this. It says, now God commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. So so when does that fixed day of judging the world in righteousness come? It comes by a man. It comes when Jesus Christ returns. It comes when the Lord returns comes. And friends, he he is coming. So turn to him now and be one of his people delivered when he comes, rather than one of his enemies destroyed and judged when he comes. This is the call of the prophet Micah. Let's move to verse 4. We see in verse 4 that when, when the Lord comes, when judgment comes, every part of the earth will be destroyed. And we get really terrifying images for this. We have the mountains melting 
like wax before the fire. The valleys shaking and splitting open. It's hard to imagine a more terrifying thing than just the ground beneath you melting and giving way. If you take a a stick of butter and you put it in the oven for half an hour, what it's doing is what the Smoky Mountains and the sand dunes of Indiana will do at the Lord's return. If you get the tiller out and just feel the ground shake as you are pounding that thing into the ground, this is what the ground beneath us will do at the coming of the Lord. And this is just the image he has for the destruction of Jerusalem. We have coming to us the entire world. So that is why if Micah can say, like wax before the fire, the mountains will melt. First Peter says that even the heavenly bodies will melt when he comes back. While we wonder what is happening below us, we will look up and see the moon melting. And while Micah says that the valleys will shake and be split open, The book of Hebrews says, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. We will wonder why the ground beneath us is giving way, and then we will look up and wonder what is going on on the sun, stars, and skies above us. When he comes, it is as if the very fabric of the universe will rip apart. Now, we have some sense of this on our hearts as modern people. How scared are we of the possibility of a one to two degree change in the atmosphere's average temperature. All right, some of our children are terrified about this because of what we have taught them. Just about one to two degrees, which ought to show you how fragile the ecosystem is, right? All the Lord would have to do is stop maintaining the balance and life would perish on earth. What will we do when he comes to judge the earth? So the prophet's call is, let's turn, let's trust him. If the Spirit searches your heart right now and says, that's what I am worthy of, I am hiding sin from God right now. If you hear his voice, don't harden your heart, return to him, come to him. The day is coming, look to him and be spared. You might ask, why? Why is God coming like that. that. That sounds like straight out of a horror movie. Why is that in my Bible? And the next verses tell us, verses 5, 6, and 7 tell us. I'll read them again for you. All this, he says, is for the transgression of Jacob, for the sins of the house of Israel. And I'll skip down to 6. He says, therefore I'll make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for the planting of vineyards, I'll pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. And then in verse 7, he goes into detail about what Samaria and Jerusalem's sins were. So in verse 5, we see the words, all this, right? All that stuff we have talked about so far. Why is it that way? Because the sins of Samaria and Jerusalem were that bad. They were worthy of the Assyrian army coming in and wiping out their city. Why is the Lord coming to judge the whole earth? Because our deeds are, are that bad. 
He says this differently in verse 6 with the word therefore, right? You can get the logic there. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the end. Because of what they have done, I will make their city a heap. And then in verse 7, he outlines just what they did. Uh, What they were doing, especially in Samaria, and this was beginning to infect Jerusalem as well, uh, they had a temple and there were prostitutes in the temple. And you would go and you would bring your gold coin or your silver coin in and you would pay the prostitute and you would engage in idolatry and prostitution at the same time. And then she would take the gold coin and she'd give it to the temple workers who would melt it down and when they had enough, they would make an idol out of the wages. And so now when you come in to visit the temple prostitute, you got yet another idol that you could worship. And they kept growing things like this. What would happen is the Assyrian army would come through, they would destroy Samaria, raid the temple that they had there, take all of those gold idols, melt them down back into money. And here's the irony, with which they would go home to their temple and pay their temple prostitute, who would then turn it back into an idol again. And so this is why it says, all her images will be beaten to pieces, all her wages will be burned with fire, the wage and the image, one was made out of the other. All of her idols I will lay waste, for from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. Now, as I go through that, I'm saying to myself, I can't believe I'm talking about that in church, right? Like, that is what they were doing. And so it begins to make sense that the Lord said it's just time to destroy the whole thing. Well, the New Testament speaks similarly. It doesn't use the prostitution idolatry picture to do it, but it speaks similarly about the sorts of things that we do every day as people. Uh, Hear what Ephesians 5 says. It says, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you would be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. And, And here's the point. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes on the sons of disobedience. So you see his logic there. Why is Jesus going to come in judgment? Because of stuff like that, he says. Because of things like rampant immorality and crude joking and idolatry and covetousness. That's why he's coming to judge the earth. This hit me very soberly this week. Because uh, this means that when you're, say you turn on the radio and you just hear like a new Beyonce song, it's just there on the radio. Uh, she has a new song now called, called Church Girl uh, that starts out, uh, I want to do thy will, I feel like I can move mountains and biblical imagery. And then about like midway through it, she says something like, when I hit this party, I'm going to let go of my body and can't nobody judge me. I'm going to shake that, you know what, I can't say it in church, and I'm going to shake those pretty, you know what, and can't nobody judge me in a song called Church Girl, right? So 
when you turn on your radio or you open up Spotify and it, that stuff is just there, like it's everywhere, that, that passes for honorable entertainment and wins Grammys and wins awards. When you hear that, though, you are hearing one of the reasons that Jesus Christ is coming to judge the earth. Because we would lift up and laud entertainment like that. Because we would lift up and laud witchcraft and idolatry and make books about it. This is why he's coming. It's not because he is an evil God. It's because we are evil people who have done evil things. That means that this stark imagery here points out then how deep the sin goes in our hearts. How, how dark is the sin in my heart? Dark enough that I deserve to be consumed when he came. That dark. And how dark is the sin in all of our hearts? Dark enough that we deserve to be consumed when he came. That dark. And the Lord uses this to move us to search sin out in our hearts and say, I am getting rid of that stuff. That stuff is why the wrath of God is coming and I am going to have no part of it anymore. If you sense the Spirit searching you in this way, do not resist him. Do not harden your heart. Verse 8 shows how disturbed Micah is because of this coming judgment. Let me, let me read it for you. He says, for this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a lamentation like the jackals in the morning, like the ostriches. And then he goes into a song that is a, a lament that we'll go into in, in a moment. So he is, in those days, they understood public nudity to be a very shameful thing. And he says, I'm that ashamed. He says he wants to, he is wailing and weeping over what is happening to his city and his loved ones and his hometown, making sounds like a, like a donkey makes. That's not a dignified sound. I watched YouTube, this video is about the sounds an ostrich makes. Short version, ostriches make a lot of sounds and none of them are pretty. Uh, <laughs> you can look it up yourself if you, there's hissing, there's this weird squawking, they're bad. Uh, undignified, just wailing sounds that this prophet is making because the Lord has revealed to him what is coming. So he takes up a song and he mourns and he wails. There's another truth about God's judgment. It ought to move us to tears, whether for ourselves or for the ones we love. There are tears in the room right now and we should be weeping over this because it's coming for people that we care about. James writes similarly to those who will be judged when he writes to those who are oppressing the poor and he says, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And the apostle Paul, who does not need to be afraid because he is in the gospel of Jesus Christ and he's trusted Jesus for salvation. Much like many of us, we have trusted Jesus Christ. We need not be afraid and weep for ourselves and fear because of this judgment. But in Romans 9, Paul talks very openly about the sorrow in his own heart for what his countrymen will soon experience. He says, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, of my kinsmen, according to the flesh. So 
his countrymen, the Jewish people, they had seen, most of them seen Jesus with their eyes and, and rejected him. And so what is Paul's anguish over them? It is unceasing. He's just constantly sad and upset over what is coming to his countrymen who have rejected Jesus Christ. That was not the only thing that moved him to preach so boldly, but it had to be some of what moved him to preach with such boldness. Now, surely seeing the resurrected Christ, being commissioned by him would give you a certain amount of boldness, but when he stood up to boldly proclaim the gospel for Jews and for Gentiles, much of it was because of this heart that was breaking over people he knew perhaps a wife who had divorced him because he received the gospel, or parents who had rejected him, or his own countrymen in his town, and his former mentor and Gamaliel, and all of them, the Lord is coming for all of them. One of the tough questions that Christians in the West ask, and I ask myself this often, is if I believe this stuff, why don't I share the gospel more? I think most of us believe we should be sharing the gospel more than we are. And it just kind of puzzles us. Why am I not actually doing that as much as I think that I should? I think as we stumble upon Micah's grief right here, we are approaching one of the reasons why. We don't want to imagine the people we love perishing in the coming judgment. I don't want to imagine my neighbors crying out like that. And so we, naturally, we don't think about it very often, right? It's not, we'd rather just turn on Disney Plus and watch something and, and enjoy ourselves than think about what is coming for the people we love. And because of that, then, we don't let ourselves weep and, and mourn over it. Our hearts aren't sufficiently broken for them. And then when we see them, we shy away sometimes from proclaiming the gospel because we don't have that boldness that comes from a heart that is broken for them. If you want to grow as an evangelist, I want to be more faithful sharing the gospel. Maybe what you should do this afternoon is go home, read through this text again, and just imagine your, your neighbors, the very people that will be consumed in this final judgment when it comes. Let that break your heart and move you with a boldness to bring the gospel to them. Okay, finally, we see in verse from verse 9 to the end, the way that Micah feels this judgment coming at, at any moment. He takes up this song, and the song mentions many cities. Some of them do things like one of them betrays Israel, but most of them are the cities that the Assyrian army came through on its way to Jerusalem. It would come through Judah, it would knock out one city, and it would knock out the next city, and knock out the next city, and eventually make it to the gate of Jerusalem. And the ones that we can trace, like where we know where they are today, they form a, a circle with a nine-mile radius. And in the center of that circle is Micah's hometown. So he is then picturing the Assyrian army just surrounding him, his people, his loved ones, his family, his hometown. And it has this feeling like they've surrounded us and any minute, it's just going to come. He paints the same picture for Jerusalem. He says, uh, it has come to, it has reached the gate of my people. This is verse 9. 
Her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached the gate of my people to Jerusalem. So like judgment is at the door, right? The army is at the gate. So he spends half this oracle painting this picture like there are too many people skating on the pond and the ice is about to break, right? The clock is about to hit zero. It's gone from two seconds to one second and we know what's going to happen next. He feels as if and he sees this judgment as just around the corner, almost breaking through. And the same is said for the judgment coming to the whole earth. That feeling that Micah has here, it's almost here. We're on the edge of it. It's how Christians are taught to live every day of our lives. The book of Hebrews gives some good exhortations of attending church regularly and encouraging one another and doing a number of things. And then he says, all the more as you see the day drawing near. You read that in the first century, right? But you could, it's, it's common. There's just that feeling that it is just about here. Jesus paints all these pictures in Revelation, and he ends the book by saying, Behold, I'm coming soon. And his church says, Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Right? The, that doesn't mean that you need to try to pick what calendar day in 2023 is coming back. That's not what, that means that we need to live every day of our lives like we are just on the edge. Because there's a sense in which we are. Now, typically, the, these mass destructive kind of things happen when the wickedness of a place reaches a certain level. Sodom and Gomorrah got bad enough, and so Sodom and Gomorrah happened. Before the flood, the inclinations of man got bad enough, and there was the Nephilim thing, and so the flood happened. And the Lord even tells Abraham, it's not time for you to conquer Canaan yet because the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete yet, right? Like, they, it's not bad enough yet. Things tend to pile up to a point where the Lord says, okay, enough is enough. And what I take from this is we, we have been hovering right there for 2,000 years. And what's it going to take? That's the one thing that makes him say, okay, time for the ice to break. One more person on the ice, and the ice has broken. At the very least, we must live every day of our lives like this is coming right around the corner. So there we have Micah's picture of the destruction of Jerusalem, which pictures for us the destruction coming upon the whole world. One of the most sobering things to talk about in all of the truths of the Bible. And let's remember why God tells us about that. Why does God tell us about judgment before he does it? Because he loves us, and he wants to see us turn. So that means Two different things for us here. How do, how do we respond to this? Uh, some of you are, are walking with Jesus Christ. You say, my trust is in him for salvation and forgiveness. I don't fear this judgment. And yet, perhaps the Spirit has searched you this morning and reminded you of, of secret sin that you aren't willing to bring out into the light. Uh, or reminded you of open sin that you're just not willing to turn from. And he wants you to see here the seriousness of that. The kind of things that we hide and won't tell people about, that is the sort of stuff, because of that, the Lord is coming in judgment. It's a big deal. And so what he's calling you to do is turn not just from the sin, but from keeping it in the dark. 
Right? That means finding somebody that you trust enough that won't use what you tell them against you, but will instead pull you out of the pit if you tell them what sins you're fighting and going through. For some of us, that is just how we ought to respond. Tremble before the Lord, entreat his favor, and turn from sin. Others of you are not followers of Jesus, but you're thinking about following him. You're considering following him. And, and I want you to know, we're coming so close to the very truth of the gospel. When we read stuff like this, we're reading, why do we need the gospel? What is Jesus saving us from? And part of coming to him is being willing to say, I have sinned deeply enough against God that I deserve that. Now, if we can say that and look to him, his blood is more than enough to cover all of our sins. And so my call to anybody who needs it, place your faith in Jesus Christ and trust your salvation to him. Amen. Let's pray together, church.